Uh, hello. Um, we will now have our New Testament reading, um, which the sermon will be on, which is Matthew 7, verses 7 uh, to 12. Um, if you do have a Bible with you, it will be helpful to turn to that now, but no worries if not. That's Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you... If your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And this too is the word of the Lord. Who is God? What is his character? What should your life look like if you know him intimately? These are massive questions, are they not? And they are just some of the questions that Jesus has been addressing in his Sermon on the Mount, which we have been studying in the evening service over the last couple of months. So, for example, one of the major themes that we have been seeing in Jesus' teaching is that his disciples should live radically different lives from the world around them. As a theme, it really summarizes all the passages we have looked at so far. And underpinning Jesus' countercultural teaching has been a countercultural view of God that he is a heavenly father. And so it is this radically different view of who God is that should lead his disciples to live such radically different lives. Theologian J.I. Packer has helpfully echoed this idea by saying, You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And it is this idea that knowing God as a father should have such a profound effect on our lives, which I think is at the heart of the passage that we're looking at this evening. So as we dig into this passage now, I hope that we will first see more clearly the character of our Heavenly Father. And in light of this knowledge of who God is, that we would see um, then how we should rightly behave as his children. So the character of our Heavenly Father and the behavior of his children. 
So first, the character of our Heavenly Father. To look at this, we'll begin by jumping into the middle of our passage and address verses 9 to 11. In these verses, Jesus begins by giving us two illustrations to help us consider what constitutes a good father. So verse 9, we can picture the scene. Lily starts to feel hungry, and so she asks, please may I have some bread to eat? It is a request, isn't it, that all good fathers would want to grant. Good fathers want to see their children satisfied. So it would be unthinkable to us that a good father would respond by saying, no, have this stone instead. For one, the stone contains no nutritional value. It would do nothing to quench Lily's hunger. But even worse, the stone could do Lily harm. She could break her teeth trying to bite into it. It could cause her to choke if she tries to swallow it. No good fathers desire to give good gifts to their children, not gifts that could do them harm. Or what about verse 10? Billy would like a pet, and so off he goes to the pet, local pet store with his father. After looking around for a while, he decides he wants a fish, and so he, he asks his father whether this would be okay. It again seems a sensible request. And so it would be unthinkable to us that a good father would respond by saying, no, have this cobra instead. Such an animal would be extremely dangerous to Billy. He could easily be bitten, and if left untreated, the venom would cause Billy to die. No good fathers desire to give good gifts to their children, not gifts that put their children in unnecessary danger. These illustrations show, serve to show us that everyone knows what being a good father looks like. We know implicitly that good fathers don't give harmful or dangerous gifts. And so in verse 11, Jesus uses this fact to convince us of a quite remarkable truth about who God is. So verse 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Notice first the unflattering assumption. Jesus says we are evil. Perhaps we want to push back a little on what Jesus is saying. But I think that as we watch the news more and more, we have to conclude that Jesus' assessment of humanity is uncomfortably accurate. So we're now living in the 21st century, and yet we are still blowing people up. We are still discriminating against people based on race, ethnicity, and gender. We are still exploiting the weakest and most vulnerable so that we in the West can preserve our uh, relatively luxurious lifestyles. Or think back to lockdown, Remember the videos of people fighting in the supermarket over the last packet of toilet roll. In these examples, we see what the Bible teaches, that humans are corrupted by sin, 
and their actions are tainted by selfishness and evil. So with this in mind, do you see Jesus' point in verse 11? If even earthly fathers, though evil and corrupted by sin, know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will our heavenly Father, who is in contrast perfect in all aspects of his being, give good gifts to those who ask him? God, by this logic then, God must be a vastly superior Father compared to all others. One of the first things I did when I arrived in Zurich was to go up the Utliberg. And I have to say, I was blown away. The views I saw were spectacular. But as I talked to more people, I realized that the Utliberg wasn't actually that special, that Switzerland had vastly superior mountains to visit, much more spectacular views to experience. And hearing that made me want to go to these places and discover them for myself. The Utliberg on its own could no longer fully satisfy me. And I think verse 11 is designed to evoke a similar response in us. Hearing from Jesus that there is a vastly superior father should cause us to lift our eyes to him, should it not? How much more then should we want to be his children? to trust in and depend on him fully, to know him more deeply and intimately. Understood rightly, these are truly remarkable verses about who God is. And because these verses are so extraordinary, I think we struggle to believe that they can really be true. In particular, when we hear at the end of verse 11, that your Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask, we can't help but think of our own experiences of unanswered prayer. And therefore, at this point, I think it is worth briefly clarifying what Jesus is not saying in these verses. So firstly, Jesus is not saying that God will give his children everything that they ask for. Even in earthly terms, we know that children do not always know what is best for them and that we recognize that a good father is not someone who just says yes to every one of their children's requests. And hence, it is very good news indeed that God does not give us everything that we want. As Jesus says at the end of verse 11, our heavenly father will only give us what is good for us. And Jesus is not saying, also in these verses, that God will give good gifts immediately. Notice that time is never mentioned in verses 9 to 11. As human beings, we often want things right away. But like earthly children, we know that our timing is not always best. In contrast, the Bible tells us that God's timing is perfect. We can trust that in his providence, God is waiting for the right moment. What we, do, what we need to do is not be discouraged, but pray on convinced that God is our heavenly father and that he will not withhold good things from his children. You see, this truth that God is a perfect heavenly father 
who will give good gifts to his children is not contradictory with our experiences. We can therefore trust and know that this is really what God is like. So far then, we have seen that God is a perfect father who will give good gifts to his children. But Jesus does not stop there. Because knowing who God is should change how we think and behave. This link is emphasized by the so-called sandwich structure of these verses. So far, we've only looked at the middle or filling in verses 9 to 11, which is all about the character of God. And now we turn to the application contained within the bread in verses 7 and 8 and verse 12. We will look at verse 12 next week. Instead, instead tonight, I want to think about the implication or application in verses 7 and 8. Put simply, ask, seek, and knock. So first, ask. I wonder how you have been feeling as we have been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount over the last couple of months. I think there is definitely a sense that we should be feeling a sense of inadequacy and weakness. Jesus' teaching has been countercultural and deeply challenging. The standards he has set have been exceptionally high. And if we're honest with ourselves, all aspects of our lives look strikingly different from what Jesus says they should be. In last week's passage, we saw Jesus say that we will be judged. And that is a scary thought, is it not? If we realize the extent to which we fall short of God's standards. And if you are rightly feeling like this, well, what comfort do the, what comfort do the beginning of verses 7 and 8 bring? Ask, and it will be given to you. For everyone who asks, receives. At the very least, this tells us that we don't have to solve all our problems on our own. That in our inadequacy and weakness, we can cry out to God for help, and he will answer. These verses, therefore, bring us great hope. It is true that we don't come close to reaching God's standards, but verses 7 and 8 tell us that we have a heavenly father who wants to help us. If only we would ask for it. But it is not only the knowledge of our inadequacy that should drive us to come to pray. Perhaps you've recently seen a family in a supermarket. And very often in this scenario, children are constantly asking their parents for things. Why? Well, part of their desire to ask is certainly driven by their inadequacy. Children realize that they can't get what they need on their own, and they must seek their parents' help. But I think an even greater driving force in this situation is the knowledge of their parents' character. Children know that their parents love them and want to give them good gifts. So they ask expectantly, knowing that there is a very good chance that their parents will delight in giving them what they want. 
If it is true, then, that children continually and expectantly ask their earthly fathers for good things, even though they are evil, then how much more should we be doing the same with our heavenly Father, who is perfect? So that raises this question, then. How would you describe your prayer life? If you're anything like me, it is a question we feel embarrassed to answer. We are fully aware that often our prayer lives are inadequate. The prayer is not a high enough priority in our daily lives. And when we do get around to playing, we are often so very distracted. Perhaps in part because we have very low expectations of what God will do to answer them. But do you see how this is at complete odds with who Jesus says God is? God is not a stingy God, but a perfect heavenly Father. He therefore wants to give good gifts to his children in response to their prayers. How much more then should we want to pray to this God, to depend and rely fully on him? So ask. And secondly, seek. What would you say is the best thing about a father? I guess for most of us, it would feel wrong to answer that question by saying that it is the material things that they can give us. We know instinctively that much more important is for a child to know their father and to have an intimate relationship with them. This is the best gift that a father can ever give. I guess it is this knowledge that drives a foster child to go to such lengths to search after their biological parents. They know that without that relationship, they are severely missing out. So they are desperate to find their parents, whatever the cost. No private investigator is too expensive. No country is too far away to visit. All their resources they are willing to use as long as their searching is not in vain. And so if children are willing to go to such lengths to seek after their earthly fathers, even though they are evil, how much more then should we be seeking, whatever the cost, after our perfect heavenly one? Often the world is realistic about what treasures it searches after. We know that the best treasure this world has to offer is often the most difficult to find. But did you notice the quite remarkable claim that Jesus is making in verses 7 and 8? Seek and you will find. The one who seeks finds. You see, Jesus is saying that the greatest treasure in this universe a relationship with a perfect heavenly father, well, it is this treasure that we can be guaranteed of finding if only we seek it. And do you see the logic from verse 11 about why this must be true? God is a perfect heavenly father. He will will not withhold the best gift from us the satisfying joy of knowing him. 
This is the gift that pleases him most to give. So I think that begs the question, are you someone who is desperately seeking after God? Perhaps you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You find the character of God portrayed in these verses attractive, but you still don't know whether they are true. Well, can I urge you to spend the time investigating? Why not start reading the Bible and see what you make of it? Why not ask a Christian friend to do that with you? If what Jesus is saying is true, then it is by seeking that you will discover the greatest treasure this universe has to offer. What then do you have to lose? But perhaps you're here tonight and you are already a Christian. Then the challenge for you is this. Are you still desperately seeking after God? I think it is easy after being a Christian for a while for our enthusiasm to dwindle. Perhaps we become complacent and we think we know God well enough already. Or perhaps we even become distracted by worldly treasures. But do you see in light of what Jesus is saying how crazy it is to think like that? The greatest treasure this universe has to offer is knowing your heavenly Father better. And it is this treasure that you are guaranteed to discover more deeply if only you seek after it. Surely that should be our greatest priority and desire. So ask, seek, and finally, knock. This concept flows naturally after seeking. But I think Jesus makes this a separate point of application because being able to know someone is not a guarantee of having a personal relationship with them. So take Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England. If you wanted to know more about her, it wouldn't be super difficult. You could read some of her biographies. You could listen to some of her speeches. You could even camp in the rain outside Buckingham Palace. But it would be ludicrous to suggest then that because you know things about her, having a personal relationship is guaranteed, that you could now knock on the front door of Buckingham Palace and be assured that she would just let you in. And maybe that is what worries you with regards to God. Perhaps you've been attending IBC for a while now and you are convinced that what the Bible teaches about God is true, but you are hesitant to commit to following Jesus because you struggle to believe that the creator of the entire universe would want to have a personal relationship with you, that he would want to let you into his kingdom. For if you're tempted to believe that God might be like that, then hear these amazing words from verses 7 and 8. Knock, and the door will be opened. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
You see, Jesus is saying that you can have full assurance of entering God's kingdom, of being God's child, of having an intimate relationship with him. And to do so, you don't need an impressive CV. All you need to do, Jesus says, is knock. And as before, this amazing truth flows naturally from God being a heavenly father. Good fathers will not keep themselves distant from their children. They want their children to come near. And hence, the same must be true with God. He wants to enter into a personal relationship with you. Perhaps then you need to make a commitment to him for the first time tonight with the assurance that he will open the door to everyone who knocks. But there are also implications here for those of us who are already Christians. Implications in particular about who we should be telling the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. You see, the temptation for us is to carefully select who we tell. To only tell those who are morally superior to the rest, perhaps. But to do so is to act in a way that is contradictory to who God really is. You see, God is not a heavenly examiner, but a heavenly father. And as we have seen, no one needs an impressive CV to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus tells us that everyone is just the door knock away. So in light of this truth, surely we must be people who are telling this good news to absolutely everyone. Wouldn't it be great if others could share our joy in knowing intimately this perfect Father? So in summary, we have seen this evening the character of God. He is a perfect heavenly Father who will give good gifts to those who ask him. And then in light of this, we have seen what it looks like to rightly live as his children, to be people who ask, seek, and knock. These verses are challenging. And as we have looked through them together, I guess the many ways in which we fall short have been highlighted to us. But the answer, I don't think, is just to resolve to try harder. No, the antidote that Jesus presents is what is at the heart of these verses, the character of God. It is by knowing more deeply at the core of our heart that God is a heavenly father, that the application presented in these verses will naturally flow from our lives. So why not make a commitment this week to regularly remind yourself about who God is, It is by knowing God as our Father that we will rightly live as his children. Why don't I pray for us now as we finish? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that that is exactly who you are. Thank you that you are the perfect Father. Um, so much greater than all other fathers we know. Sorry for the times we forget that, that we act in a way that is not in line with your character.
Help us more deeply, we pray, to know what you are like and to live rightly in light of this as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.